Society 13 Podcast Network. Redefining podcasts. Do you like to listen? In a flicker of candlelight, I turn on the tarot card. You'll find me, Avery Lewis, executive producer of Mystery Goes Podcast, listening and doing other magical deeds. Remember, this episode is entirely listening supported. If you'd like to join me and the other spirits in the dark, then do visit the support tab at historygoesbump.com or you might be seeing us from the other side of your and the supernatural in Central Florida. It's the History Goes Bump Podcast. Hello, you spectacular people. Welcome to this 196th episode of the History Ghost Bump Podcast. Ghost tours for the theater of the mind. I am your host, Diane. And this is Denise. On today's episode, we have a location that was suggested to us by our listener, Zoe Timmerman, and that is Coe College in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. Zoe's going to be joining us in a little bit to share her experiences that she had on the campus and some of the hauntings that she's heard that happen to be occurring there. What did you think of Avery's intro there, Denise? I thought it was very clever, very cute. It is. We loved it. We wanted to give a special thank you to Mike Brown over at Pleasing Terrors Podcast. He was interviewed recently on the podcast, Podcasts We Listen To, and he said some really nice things about us, Denise, and we really appreciated that. Yes, we did. So thank you, Mike, for that. Also, want to let everybody know that I have written my second story for the Lyft Podcast. It's called Redemption. And you can listen to that over at iTunes or whatever podcast catcher you get. Hopefully you are subscribed to The Lift already. It's a fabulous podcast starring our very own Victoria that you guys hear every so often in our sound bites here. So I hope you check it out. Let me know what you think about it. The cover art is amazing, Denise. It has a skeletal plague doctor and that was just cooler than heck when I saw it. She actually squilled when she saw it. <laughs> So thanks to Dan and Cindy and Amber and the whole crew over at The Lift for bringing my story to life. You guys did an awesome job. We want to welcome to the Spooktacular crew, Stacy, who spells her name with an E-Y at the end. Hey, Stacy with an E-Y. Karen, who spells her name with a C and a Y. Hello, Karen, with your C and Y. Kayla. Hey, Kayla. Crystal. Hello, Crystal. Rubina. Hey, Rubina. Christina. Hi, Christina. 
and somebody who goes by the name How About That. And hello, How About That. It sounds <laughs> like you should be joining us in New Orleans. It's Definitely. Just, <laughs> how about that anyway? <laughs> so we're not teasing you. Well, kind of, but not really. And now this moment in oddity. Back in the 1960s, some human bones were excavated from the medieval English village Warham Percy in North Yorkshire. They had peculiar marks on them that indicated the bones had been broken, chopped, and burned post-mortem. Recently, researchers have begun new studies of these bones and reported their findings in the Journal of Archaeological Science. The report indicated that people believed in revenants, which are reanimated corpses, all the way back to the 11th century. They believe that these markings indicate some kind of practice to keep dead people from rising. This would be the first evidence of such practices. The bones date back to between the 11th and 14th centuries and indicate they had all been decapitated and dismembered. Some might argue that this is actually evidence of cannibalism, but experts point out that the cuts do not line up with butchery for survival cannibalism. The cuts do not occur at the joints, and animal bones found in the same areas do not have these distinctive markings. Head researcher Simon May said, It shows us a dark side of medieval beliefs and provides a graphic reminder of how different the medieval view of the world was from our own. Our listener Jenny from Australia said, They chopped up their dead to rush the decomposition. They believed that the soul was released when the body was skeletons. I studied these when I completed my thesis on deviant burials. Whatever the case may be, medieval beliefs certainly were odd. And now, this month in history. In the month of April, on the 18th in 1775, Paul Revere and William Dowes conducted the midnight ride to warn the Patriots that the British were coming. The two men rode out of Boston about 10 p.m., heading for Lexington and Concord. Concord was the temporary home of the Provincial Congress. A large armory stored munitions here as well, and Revere and leaders of the Patriot movement suspected that the British were planning a raid there. A plan was laid out for Revere to arrange for the placement of signal lanterns in the belfry of Old North Church. This spot could easily be seen across the Charles River. The signal would be that if one lantern was lit, then the British were coming by a land route. If two lanterns were lit, it meant that the British were coming by boat on the Charles River. Early on the evening of April 18th, a stable boy informed Revere that the British were preparing boats for crossing the Charles. Revere was joined on his run by a young shoemaker named William Dawes. They split up to ensure that one of them made it. Revere narrowly escaped capture by two British soldiers and Dawes slipped past the guards on Boston Neck. A third man named Dr. Samuel Prescott joined them later and he split off at a roadblock. He knew the countryside intimately. He was the only one of the three to make it all the way to Concord to raise the alarm. (laughs) 
Koch College is located in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. The college began in the 1850s in, of all places, the parlor of a reverend. The school grew from a religious studies to a liberal arts college that was a pioneer in the education of women. The college suffered growing pains through the years and nearly closed, but today it thrives. There are tales of hauntings on the campus, with the most well-known being the story of Helen and her spirit. Our listener Zoe Timmerman joins us to share her experiences. Join us as we explore the history and hauntings of Coe College. Cedar Rapids is the second largest city in Iowa. It was originally the territory of the Fox and Sauk tribes. The Fox or Meskwaki tribe had lived in the Great Lakes area, but French colonization pushed them south. The first settler to establish himself in Cedar Rapids was Osgood Shepherd in 1838. He built a log cabin home for his wife and children and his father. People coming to the area would stop here because of its position on the east bank of the river, and they started calling the homestead Shepherd's Tavern. While Shepard was an accommodating host, rumors circulated that he entertained horse thieves, and that perhaps his affinity for these villains was that he himself stole horses. Some years later, he was arrested in another state for horse stealing and sent to the penitentiary. He reformed and became a religion professor. There you go, Denise. From horse stealer to religious professor. Sounds about right. (laughs) William Stone arrived in the area in 1838 as well, and he named the town Columbus. It was renamed in 1841 for the Cedar River that was nearby. It had rapids, and so the city became Cedar Rapids. It was incorporated on January 15, 1849. And a fun fact is Cedar Rapids is the largest corn processing city in the world and former home to Grant Wood, who painted American Gothic. Ah, always a fun fact. And speaking of art, the Cedar Rapids Museum of Art did have a ghost visitation at one time. The building had been Cedar Rapids Town Library until 1985. A woman named Hazel frequented the library in the 1960s, so it was not unusual for her to visit the library. But on this particular day, it freaked out patrons and employees. The reason why was because Hazel had died in a fire at 4 a.m. that same morning. She was not seen again. Another haunted place in the city is Oak Hill Cemetery. The ghost of a little Czech girl named Tilly has been seen in the cemetery, and she's usually carrying a lit candle. There is a mausoleum that she favors, and people claim that she attempts to pull visitors into that mausoleum. The location that harbors the most famous haunt in Cedar Rapids is Coe College. The college began, and of all places, the home of a reverend. Williston Jones was a Presbyterian pastor, and he invited a young man named George Carroll to study in his parlor. Soon, 17 other men joined Carroll. The pastor called his school the School for the Prophets. That's kind of a big name there. <laughs> so they're all going to be a bunch of prophets, huh? <laughs> I guess so. So you, He had big hopes. <laughs> high expectations for those graduates. <laughs> yeah. In 1853, he asked the congregation to help raise $1,500 to send three of those boys to seminary. A farmer named Daniel Coe approached Reverend Jones and suggested he open his own seminary. Coe gave him the money, some of which he had to borrow with two stipulations. The seminary had to have a farm so the students could support themselves, and the education had to be opened up to women as well. You're thinking this is back in 1853? That's a pretty big move. And this guy, it's a farmer. So you think, ah, you know, he's backward thinking farmer or whatever. And he said, I'll give you the money, but you have to educate women too. Well, what's kind of cool, it was a farmer who was kind of 
doing the financing of this thing, and that's not really, you don't usually equate farmers with people with a lot of money these days, unless they're those big, big ranches, but not just a local farmer. Yeah. Well, and there is a legend about that money that he raised that a lot of it had to come from New York. So it was coming from New York West, and it was sewed into the petticoat of a woman who arrived in Iowa by stagecoach. So I don't know if that was to make sure it didn't get stolen. (laughs) I'm not sure. But That's a different fun. different take on Petticoat Junction, huh? <laughs> yeah, I'm bringing you your deposit. It's in my Petticoat. <laughs> Coe's money was used to buy two downtown lots for the school and then 80 acres of land for the farm that was outside of town. The school was incorporated in 1853 and was known first as Cedar Rapids Collegiate Institute. In 1868, the trustees for the school hoped to acquire the Parsons Estate, and they changed the name to Parsons Seminary. That attempt failed, and the college suffered financial difficulties. In 1875, the school became the Coe Collegiate Institute to honor Daniel Coe. That's cool, because when our niece got accepted to Coe College, I always kind of wondered where that name came from, because it was a little weird to me. So now we know. By 1875, the school was almost defunct, and a push was made to change the school from a private institution to a public one. With all of the college's early trouble, it took 31 years before it graduated any students. Those students were E. Bell Stewart and Stephen W. Stuckey. By 1901, the college had three buildings, Old Main, which was built in 1868, Williston Hall, which was built in 1881, and Marshall Hall, that was built in 1900. Williston was a red brick dormitory for the women that had a veranda and hot and cold running water. Those girls said, you're building us a dorm? <laughs> it better have hot and cold water. It better be a nice one. Old Main housed mainly administrative and classrooms. Marshall was named for the second president of the school and was emblazoned with the Latin statement that meant no day without a line, and it housed classrooms. The gymnasium was constructed in 1904. By 1909, there was a real need for another building that was mostly financed by Andrew Carnegie. This would be the science hall. You know what's fun? We've been doing a lot of these universities, and as we've pointed out, it seems like they all have an old main. So here's Coe College has its old main, and here's Andrew Carnegie's name coming up again for building a building at a university. I believe was it, it was Penn State University that he built one of the buildings there as well. I just thought it was interesting because this is a small college in Iowa that he was building it for, so... Now, if people are listening, they're hearing, okay, there's three buildings. You've got Old Main, which has a lot of classrooms and administrative, Williston Hall, where the ladies are staying, and Marshall Hall, which housed a bunch of classrooms. So where's the boys? <laughs> yeah, where are the boys? Interestingly enough, they didn't have a dorm here. They were told, you got to go fend for yourselves. <laughs> so they would stay at boarding houses and other places in town, but they did not have a dorm for the guys. Well, you can't say that they needed more women's rights at this college. No, it's like we're going to educate women starting in the <laughs> mid-1800s. And the guys, if you have to sleep on the stoop, oh, well. <laughs> but we'll let you come. <laughs> the T.M. Sinclair Memorial Chapel was built in 1911. It was Gothic in style and became the heart of the campus. T.M. Sinclair was the founder of the Sinclair Meat Packing Company. He used his wealth to liquidate the debt from Parsons Seminary and the Cedar Rapids Collegiate Institute. The property was then handed over to the Iowa Presbyterian Synod. The school was then known as Coe College. And I believe this memorial chapel did burn down, and the one that stands there now is the second one that was built. So this is not the original building, the chapel that's there now. 
And another fun fact here about Coe College is that it has the shortest name of any American institution of higher education. That's kind of, that is a fun fact. Yeah. In 1907, Coe earned accreditation from the North Central Association of Colleges and Universities. The widow of Ralph Voorhees financed the building of a new female dormitory that would carry the Voorhees name. And uh, anytime you hear that name, what comes to mind, Denise? Well, because you told me Jason Voorhees from Friday the 13th. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure Phil is out there who's a big fan of Friday the 13th going, Voorhees, Voorhees, what a cool name for a dorm. Exactly. So I do apologize for any of our horror film fans that I just let down. I know. I'm like, who's that name for, Denise? What does that remind you of? And she's looking at me like, Ralph Voorhees? (laughs) (laughs) Reminds me of the dorm at Coe College. (laughs) It was completed in 1918 and had a drawing room, student suites, and a swimming pool. So, as we said, up to this point, the men had no dormitory, but it was decided that one should finally be built after Voorhees Hall was done. Green Hall was completed in 1938 for this purpose. The Robert W. Stewart Memorial Library was built in 1929. Peterson Hall was built in the 1960s, and since the late 1980s, the campus has doubled in size. McCabe Hall was built in 2005 and is named for former co-president Joseph E. McCabe. We are joined by former co-college alumni Zoe Timmerman, and she's going to share the haunting legend of Helen, as well as some other spirits that are rumored to be here. Zoe, we are so excited to have you joining us. You had suggested after listening to some of the other university episodes we've been doing, you said, hey, you got to do co-college. And that really hit home for us because our niece went to the college there. So we're like, well, we've heard about it. So it definitely is a good location. And we know there's some hauntings going on there. For sure. Before we Um, get into talking about all that, we always like to ask people, what got you interested in the paranormal? I don't really know. I've sort of always been interested in it. I had some weird experiences growing up in my dad's old house. And my mom's house is actually, uh, it was built post-Civil War. And there's some some weird stuff that happens there too. Like things will randomly not just fall, but like fall away from whatever they're sitting on. (laughs) As in somebody's Um, picked it up and moved it and then dropped it? Yeah, a little bit. And the stairs will creak and we always have animals and the animals will look up at the stairs like there's someone coming down. So it's always kind of kind of spooky, but nothing too serious. But stuff like that just makes me really interested in figuring out what else is going on in other places, you know? Exactly. I know what you're saying. That's how it is for most of us. We have those unexplained experiences and you're like, okay, well, something had to have caused that to happen. What was it? For some of us, you just have a spouse that says, hey, why don't we do this? (laughs) (laughs) Go chasing after the ghosts. So you attended Coe College. When were you there? I actually just graduated in 2015. So from 2011 to 2015. You know what? You were there very... When did Casey graduate? Because you you would have been there close to the same time that our niece attended because she hasn't been out of college very long. No, but you might have overlapped a year or two there. Mm -hmm. It's not a very big college, so... <laughs> you probably might have actually run into each other. Why don't you describe for everybody what the campus looks like? You've said it's small, so about how many buildings and what does it look like? So in terms of number of buildings, let's see. There's four main dorm buildings, or technically five, because Armstrong and Douglas is two buildings, but it's also one building. It's weird. And then there's four new apartment buildings that they built 
I think in the early 2000s, three or four admin buildings, and then six academic buildings, the field house and the racket center. So it's a gym building, has a bunch of different activities and stuff that you can do in it. But all told, it takes up maybe like four square blocks of space in Cedar Rapids. You can walk from one end of campus to another in about 10 minutes. Okay, so it is definitely a smaller campus. What's the city like there? I know it's one of the bigger ones in Iowa. I mean, it's Iowa, so. The population is about 130,000. So big for Iowa, not big for places like California, where I'm now living. Exactly. Um, Bit of a culture shock. A little bit, yeah. So Cedar Rapids is actually positioned on the Cedar River which is why it has that name. And uh, Coe College is actually right next to the river. You can see the river from a number of the dorms, actually. Oh, nice. So we know that a lot of universities don't like to put out there and colleges don't like to let people know that they have ghostly activity going on there. With stories about unexplained things, is it legends that the students share with each other? Is it something that the college puts out there? How do you find out about what's going on? I mean, I don't think the college doesn't post anything on like their website, for example, but everyone on campus and everyone who's connected to the school is well aware, at least a bit of Helen, because Helen's sort of our, our main ghost. And I think the first time I heard about Helen was actually on a tour when I was looking to attend Co. Sort of an open secret, I guess. <laughs> not really a secret, but you're not going to see anything posted about it on like the official website. And did you stay in the dorm that she supposedly haunts? Yeah, I did. My freshman year, I was I was living in Voorhees. I know a lot of people have said she would not, Helen would knock on doors, knock on walls. Um, the worst I had happen was some of my stuff would go missing. Like I would put it down in one place and I would know where it was. And then like the next time I would go to look for it, it wouldn't be there. Mm. Like sometimes I could find it again. And then other times there, there's a few things that are just gone forever. <laughs> did you have a roommate? Yeah, and I would ask her, but my my freshman year roommate was very, very quiet, and she like didn't touch any of my stuff without asking at least twice, so sure. <laughs> like, I wasn't too worried about it being her. So you're like, I'm not living with a kleptomaniac, so something's going on that's a little weird here. Yeah, exactly. And like sometimes my my phone would cut in and out. I would be like calling my parents, I would be calling my boyfriend at the time, and the phone would just cut out. It would just like stop working and I'd have to go outside. But other times it would work fine and I would like have full service. And then all of a sudden it would drop the call and I'm like, okay. Now inside that hall, there is a grandfather clock, which is a key piece of her story. Is it still there? Yeah, the grandfather clock, it started being in Voorhees. It was in Stewart, which is one of the academic buildings for a while. But when Stewart got renovated in 2004, it moved to one of the new admin buildings, um, which let me see if I can remember which building that was in Um, because I've actually seen the clock because when you get certain scholarships at Co you have to write thank you letters for the like family foundations that provide the money for that scholarship so I was doing that most of my (laughs) four years there and so I would go in and there's this it's a beautiful clock but you get close to it and you're the hair on the back of your neck kind of stands up. You get this weird tingly feeling. Mm. I like didn't even know it was Helen's clock until I, I don't remember who I was talking to. I talked to someone. They're like, oh, yeah, that's Helen's. And I'm like, oh, that explains that then. Oh, so interesting. So you hadn't already heard about that. So it isn't your mind saying, well, people say this is her clock. And then all of a sudden you started getting prickly skin. You had that feeling. And yeah. then somebody told you later, oh, well, that's her clock. Yeah. I mean, I knew the I knew the clock was 
I knew the clock existed. I knew it was in one of the administrative buildings, but no one had ever mentioned where exactly. And it was sort of surprising to later find out that, you know, I had been sitting in the office writing thank you letters next to Helen's clock. (laughs) Do you know what Helen had died from? Yes, she died during the Spanish influenza epidemic in 1918. And then the clock is something that her parents donated to the school as kind of a, a gift in her memoriam. So that's why she's connected to the clock. Yeah. So what Um, else do people say that she does? She knocks on doors. Obviously, she likes to take things. (laughs) I've heard from a couple of women who lived in on um, the second and third floor in the West Wing, which is where Helen is supposed to be the most active, that if they had boys over, she would make a lot of noise. Hmm. So I don't think she she particularly liked having having boys in the all women's dorm, <laughs> especially not after a certain time of night. Yeah, so she kind of polices the place for the college itself. So they're like, hey, we like this ghost. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. And those those were just sort of rumors. I never knew anyone that that had actually happened to. But those are definitely the the stories that would float around about Helen. And like I said, you know, sometimes there will be weird noises like someone's like knocking on doors or knocking on walls from the other side but I never had anything super unsettling happen with Helen. Yeah it was interesting because when our niece was there she had told us the story her roommate had gone out of town so she was staying at the college by herself so she was in the room by herself and she was sound asleep and woke up to she saw like a full face just screaming in her face of a apparition and she stayed I'm like no I would have been gone. That's really scary. I think she ran out of the room and then she went back in. uh, Yeah, if I woke up and this white face is screaming right in front of my face in bed, that would be enough for me. Yeah, I would get a different room after that. The reason why we love talking to our listeners about this kind of stuff is you can read stories on the internet all the time or a friend of a friend, but when you talk to people who've actually experienced it for themselves, it's a lot harder to say well, maybe it was just a fluke or somebody's made it up or it's just a legend. But when you hear from people like you that you're like, well, things went missing, that clock really creeped me out. And then we have our niece telling us who we know is not somebody who makes up stories to have that kind of an experience and something that she doesn't normally tell people that it was like, oh, you guys are doing a ghost show. Well, I had an experience. We're like, what? You didn't tell us that. And yeah, it just makes it that much more where you're like, well, something is going on there that this, you know, whether it's Helen that's doing it or something else that's picked up her energy, something's going on there. Is she the only ghost that you hear about at Coe College? She's definitely the only one with a name, but there are a few other places around campus that you know, you hear you hear rumors about um, one of them. I was actually looking through the archives of the Co Cosmos, which was the student newspaper, and I found an article from say this one's from 1981, talking about a ghost in Dow's, which is the theater building, and apparently the ghost would be up on the lighting grid and would drop ends of cords or would flicker with the lights. And according to the article, it's even happened. It had happened during productions as well. So I thought that was really interesting. I had never heard of there being a ghost in in Dow's specifically, at least not in the theater. Dow's is also the fine arts building, so you have a lot of students who are staying there really late at night. So some of them will get kind of creeped out, mm-hmm. just because it's the air circulation in the building isn't very good. So you get sort of these natural cold spots anyway, just because there's not you know, warm air circulating there or whatever. But some of my friends who were fine arts majors who 
would say, oh, you know, it's, it's kind of creepy in Dow's late at night. And I'm like, well, it's kind of creepy in any building late at night. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's true. But it is interesting that this is the theater building because as we've come to find, a lot of theaters seem to have hauntings going on there just because there's so much emotional energy. I also know that Sinclair Auditorium were a lot of things. I know that's where my niece was. Our niece was a lot was in Sinclair because mm-hmm. she was an art major and that's where they would do have a lot of the galleries. Mm-hmm. But there was a fire there that destroyed quite a bit of it and there's still like smoke stained windows. Have you heard of any hauntings there like anybody who was hurt during the fire? I have actually heard of some hauntings in Sinclair. There's um, there's supposed to be some kind of entity that haunts up in the bell tower because Sinclair is also attached to the chapel and school. And so there's this big bell tower with the clock that chimes the hour and I think the half hour. And so there's supposed to be um, an entity that haunts the bell tower. And then there's another entity that's supposed to be seen on stage sometimes. Actually, my, my sophomore year we had um, for Halloween, we had a ghost hunter come through. And apparently there was there was some weird stuff going on on the Sinclair stage. So well, that would be a good um, one reason. of my one of my friends was there for that. So that was um, that was really interesting. The other one that might just be sort of a little ghost legend is one of the other dorms, Murray, which is one of the not quite newer, I guess, newer compared to Voorhees and Green, which are the two of the older buildings on campus. But Murray is the only dorm that has an elevator and it's a nine floor building. It's a really tall building, which is why it has an elevator. Um, but sometimes the elevator doors will open and close when there's no one there. So whenever like anyone who's lived in Murray jokes that we must have an elevator ghost. <laughs> um, my friends and I called him Bob. <laughs> <laughs> Love that. Because it, it makes more sense if there is an elevator ghost to be friendly and give him a name instead of just calling him the elevator ghost because sure. maybe he won't make the elevator malfunction on us, right? Yeah. Hey, we're talking to you personally and we're being nice. So be nice to us. Yeah, exactly. So I don't know if, if that's actually something that's that's real or if that's just something that, you know, you make up when you live in Murray to explain some of the weird elevator happenings. Between Stuart and Voorhees, does one of them have a piano in the main area? Uh, yeah, Voorhees does in the main lobby. So Voorhees is interesting because it's a it's a three-floor building, but only the top two floors are residential. The bottom floor is administrative. Although when I was graduating, they were working on moving some of those admin facilities to one of the other buildings. Yeah, I don't think I'd want to have my office in where all the kids are at. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So the the main lobby of Voorhees is actually on the second floor, and there is a there is a piano in the in the lobby. Okay, the reason I asked is because supposedly Helen occasionally likes to tinkle on the keys there, too. I guess I yeah, should say I, uh, <laughs> she likes to play the keys on the piano. I was about to say, yeah, that kind of sounded like Helen was peeing on the keys, but hey. Yeah, I've definitely heard that rumor. Um, I, I don't know that I ever heard it, and I, I would definitely know because uh, students aren't allowed to play with the piano. Hmm. Because they don't want to, they don't want anyone to mess anything up, or because um, I think that the piano is supposed to be fairly old, so they don't want any rambunctious students messing with it and breaking something. My friends and I actually had an experience. We spent a lot of time in Hickok Hall, which is the like main liberal arts building, because I'm friends with a bunch of history majors and English majors and creative writing majors, and all of those disciplines are sort of lumped together in one building. 
And then one of our clubs would meet there. And so we were in the building pretty late at night one time. And we knew we were the only group in the building. Some of my friends and I were downstairs in the lobby waiting for other people to get done so we could get uh, security to lock up. Both my best friend and I saw um, someone going up the stairs in Hickok. And it's a three-story building. So people going up the stairs isn't weird. But as we're following this person, it was sort of a shadowy figure out of the corner of our eye. We went all the way through the building. We couldn't find anyone else who wasn't part of our group. And no one had been downstairs and gone back upstairs. Interesting. <laughs> so that was, a, that was a weird thing that happened. And we had actually gone all the way up to, there's two flights of stairs, or there were, they just renovated Hickok, and I think they actually finally put an elevator in. But there were two flights of stairs, and both of them ended a little bit above the third floor, going up into, I think, was probably like an attic storage space. And there was a locked door on both of them. And so we'd gone actually all the way up to that door and there was just no one there. And when we got up to that top section, it was it was a very sort of creepy feeling. So we're like, okay, we're going now. We're going to have someone else call security and have them lock up because we're, we're done now. Oh, very good. You know, when you think you see somebody go up and you're thinking, okay, well, we're going to get the place locked up. So we better make sure they don't get locked in. And you're like, okay, there's nobody else here. Where did that person go? So that was, that was a little creepy. And there are a few other sort of weird experiences that I had, but those were also sort of just coming out of sleep. So it's like might have been sleep paralysis or whatever. Mm. Um, and those were also in the new apartments, which I've never heard anything weird about. I mean, like I said, they were built in the early 2000s. So it's not there's been a lot of time for weird stuff to accumulate other than the normal college weird party energy. <laughs> sure. Well, thank you, ladies, so much for uh, having me on to talk about this. I was I was really excited about this thing. Well, um, I've been talking to my roommate about it for like the last two weeks. Awesome. Well, <laughs> okay. Very cool. Well, you have a great rest of your weekend and thanks for joining us. Great. You too, ladies. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you, Zoe. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Is the spirit of Helen still wandering the dorm hallways? And does she haunt the old grandfather clock that was given to the school as her memorial? Is Coe College haunted? That is for you to decide. All right. Well, on our next episode, we're going to go to a location in Michigan. We're going to need a ferry to get out to it, Denise. It's another island. Oh, see, and I was already going back to like our ferry episode. And I'm like, how's a ferry <laughs> going to get us there? <laughs> so Denise is going to jump on the back of Tinkerbell and ride across the water <laughs> to Mackinac Island. Very cool. Lots of legends here, lots of hauntings. So we're going to talk about the history and hauntings that are on Mackinac Island. And we're going to be joined by one of our listeners, Emily Reidner, who you've heard a couple of times doing some of those intro bumpers for us. She's going to be joining us on the next episode after that, too. So you're going to get lots of Emily coming up here. It's a month of Emily. We'd love to have you check out our website at historygoesbump.com. And Denise, if people want to send us feedback, where can they do that? They can do that at historygoesbump at gmail.com. And we got an email from Tiffany, and she wrote a, a fairly lengthy email with some suggestions and other things in there, but I wanted to share this part with everyone. Another thing I wanted to share was just how excited I was when I saw that you two did a podcast about the Palmer House Hotel in Sauk Center, Minnesota. This was the first time I'd heard about the hotel, but hearing you two talk about Minnesota was like listening to a little piece of home. Over spring break, my parents and I decided to visit the hotel, and while we didn't feel anything spooky, nor did we tempt any spirits, there you go, Denise. Good girl. It was a really nice visit. The Palmer Hotel has a little restaurant there with some good food, and the manager was kind enough to give us a tour since we called ahead. They also offer larger tours that incorporate a paranormal investigation, but we showed up on the wrong weekend for that. Everyone at the Palmer was really friendly. 
They embrace their paranormal tenets and enjoy talking about both their stories and the history of the place. Thank you, too, for sharing this site. I also want to say how much I love HGB. This podcast is a brilliant mix between history and ghost stories, and I absolutely love how you give the facts and the stories and then let the listeners decide. The way you present the stories is a wonderful change from other shows and entertainment that assumes everything is a ghost and presents it as such. I'm really excited to hear more stories and to be able to support HGB in some way. I tell my friends and family about this podcast any chance I get. Well, thank you so much for that, Tiffany. We appreciate it. And we got an email from Christina. Hello, Diane and Denise. Greetings from Plano, Texas. When I heard the podcast on Summer Wind, I was ecstatic as I visited this location when I lived in the great northern woods some years ago. My 12-year-old daughter was born in Minoqua, about an hour away from Land Lakes. I'm a born and raised Texan with a little cheesehead mini-me. I couldn't be more proud, I think. I visited the ruins of Summerwind with a friend, little 45-minute drive from where we lived in the tiny little nestled town of St. Germain. The day I went was just amazing. I picked up on a lot of stuff, more so just feelings and intuitions rather than sightings, but they were indeed there. The atmosphere of the property alone was haunting, is the best way I can describe it. The day was a beautiful, cool northern day, but what I saw there were burned, charred remains and debris, which brought a great feeling of loss to me. I could only picture in my mind a beautiful house that once stood where I was standing right there in the middle of the foundation itself. The chimneys tower above you to the clear blue northern sky like great big reminders of the beauty that was summer wind and the sadness that it had succumbed to. Little story from my friend. Her son, who was maybe four years old or so at the time, went with her to walk around the property one day. Mind you, since he was so young, she didn't share any stories about the place to her son. But when they got to a part of what is left of the basement, he pointed to one portion of the wall that still remains and asked his mom if that's where they found the body. There is a legend that while the house still stood, there were reports of a body that was buried in the wall, as Craig mentioned in the podcast. As more and more accounts come to surface over the years of this awesome location, it's exciting to put them all together to build such a fantastic story that will continue to go down in history. I hope that someday I can go back. I didn't feel anything that was malicious, but I do know there's something there that once poured love into the place, and what remains does not fall short of what history tells us. Thank you for reading. Love the show as always, and keep the goosebumps coming. Thank you so much for sharing that, Christina. And wow, to hear that a four-year-old who had no idea about any of the legends or history there say, is that where they found the body? I don't know. That's pretty weird. And then we heard from Amanda, who took a little trip out to a place we love called Salem. Hi, guys. I love your show and listen to it every day. I just got done listening to your 2015 Salem episode. I went there a few weeks ago and had the best time. I love Salem. It is rich with history and is crazy haunted. I stayed at the Salem Inn and had a small experience. I did read the hotel was in fact haunted. I searched after my little encounter. My husband and I were laying in bed. He was asleep and I was woken up by someone or something knocking at our door. It was like 3 or 4 a.m. and I knew there was no way it was a person. The staff leaves at 10 p.m. and we were the only ones on our floor. There were also no small children staying there either. I covered all the bases. I felt like I was being watched the entire time as well, which was a tad unsettling. Prior to the knocking, we both heard doors shutting and running up the stairs, which was unusually cold, I noticed, than any place else in the inn. I tried to debunk the entire thing, but had no explanation to the knocking. I told my husband about the knocking, and he was like, oh yeah, I've been hearing it too. He was cool as a cucumber about it, lol. I was talking to one of the staff the next morning and told her my story. She confirmed I wasn't nuts. In fact, I was also told that they keep spirit boards on hand at the inn. Please keep in mind this hotel was built in the 1800s. 
Anyway, that's my experience, and it was kind of chilling. I've had lots of weird stuff happen to me most of my life, so this is not shocking, just interesting. Then Amanda went on to share that she ventured into some of the shops there. She did every tour that was available to her, visited the witch dungeon, which freaked her out the most, and that after going through some of the shops there, she had some of the worst dreams of her life. So thank you so much for writing us, Amanda. We appreciate that. And we have a couple of reviews to share with everybody. First one is from Jennifer DeWald. Complete listening pleasure, five stars. This is an excellent podcast for anyone interested in history and or the paranormal. The host's witty banter is enjoyable to listen to. Makes one feel as if they are part of a conversation with friends rather than just listening to a podcast. I have recommended this podcast to many people already and will continue doing so. Well, thanks so much, Jennifer. We appreciate that. And Mo Collins, an excellent and fun podcast, five stars. I just found History Goes Bump a couple of days ago, and I'm so glad I did. The stories are interesting, the shows are just the right length, and the hosts are charming. I appreciate the open yet skeptical view they take and the amount of research they clearly do before reading. And Diane sounds just like Holly Fry from Stuff You Missed in History. Best of all, there are tons of back episodes. I highly recommend this podcast. Thank you, Mo. And that is not the first time that I've heard somebody say I sound like Holly Fry on Stuff You Missed in History class. And they have a great show. So that's a compliment to me. As a matter of fact, it was one of the shows that I first started listening to where I went, well, that'd be kind of cool to do something with another co-host that's female, my wife. And <laughs> so people probably notice we have a very similar style to Stuff You Missed in History class with the back and forth. You read a little bit, I read a little bit, that kind of thing. So that's where I got the idea from. We want to thank everybody for listening to this episode. I've been your host, Diane. And this has been Denise. You take care now. Bye-bye. This episode has been brought to you by our executive producers. We'd like to welcome new executive producers, Tiffany Schaefer, Jessica Peterson, Rebecca Miles, and Mike Brown of Pleasing Terrors. Thanks. Check out the website at historygoesbump.com.